Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Lily CBD. Today's guest, Trish Gautier, is someone who received a diagnosis while caregiving for her own son through his illness. Welcome, Trish. Hi, Harper. Nice to be here. So happy to have you here. I think it's funny that we've only connected through Instagram, like not even through email until recently, but I'm so excited to have you on here. Let's start. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Okay. Well, I like to say I'm an unapologetic born New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, raised in the suburbs of Long Island. I'm an only uh, only girl. I have two younger brothers, and I have two boys. They're twins, 21 years old. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And you know, and we talked about this before, the unapologetic New Yorker. I am so with you on that one. Yes. Oh my gosh. So let's talk a little bit about your breast cancer diagnosis, specifically the feeling that something was off with your body, which I know a lot of people who are listening to the podcast can relate to this concept of just I know my body pretty well and something's off. What's going on here? So how did that feeling manifest and what steps did you take off the bat? Well, it's really bizarre. Yeah. In fact, you said, you know, something is off, but you can't put your finger on it. And what was really difficult for me was, you know, I just had a physical pass with flying colors. The most he said was my iron was low, but I just walked away feeling like something's just not right. And believe it or not, I was just coughing one day and my hand just passed over the lump and uh, it was devastating. I knew right away, I knew something was off. And so that began my quest into figuring out my diagnosis. What was that first thing that you did after discovering the lump? I called my doctor right away. I called his office and I told them I found the lump and I wanted him to, you know, investigate. And they were a little incredulous because at the time I was 37. So no need for a mammogram. I didn't, you know, you don't qualify until you're 40 or if you have a history. So it was a little bit of a struggle even getting an appointment, but I pushed through and I stood my ground and made sure that they saw me the next week. And that's what I did. I went right in the office. Wow. So around the time of your diagnosis, you were just getting into the other side of your journey with caretaking for your son who had leukemia. Before we get too in-depth about your story, can you talk a little bit about your role as a caregiver and what that was like for you and your son? Wow. Talk about incredible, right? My son was diagnosed. um, Even to get his diagnosis was kind of a rough battle because it wasn't genetic. He just had a very, very hard migraine. It was like beating him up for weeks. At the time, he was 14, I believe, healthy, strong, but just so tired and fatigued. And so a couple of trips to the emergency room and advocating for him, you know, um, that unapologetic New Yorker comes into, into play when you're trying to get answers for your kid, right? So I argued and asked questions, and ultimately they told me he had leukemia. 
and man, oh man, I mean, ooh, it was so difficult because when you're the sick one, you can kind of speak for yourself, but speaking for someone else, a child, a teen at that, oh, was a rough battle. And so what was that like navigating that time with him? And how did going through that experience with him then help you through your own cancer diagnosis? Okay, so, you know, we're socialized as women or women identifying to kind of be meek and small and just defer. And so that's kind of how I initially started because I figured the doctors knew best. But then I remembered, that's my kid. So while it's there nine to five, we have to live with it. So if he needed a test and we've been waiting for hours, it took me having to speak up. That was when I really found my voice in advocating for my son. Then I said, no, we've been waiting for so long. We demand, we demand, we demand, we demand to be seen and recognized, not just placated and stuff like that. So it's weird being a caregiver for someone because you're, you're their publicist, you're their maid, you're their PR person. And so I'm in between playing all these roles. And then also I'm taking the brunt of his anger and what to do with those emotions. It was very trying time. How did that manifest itself, the anger? I mean, when you're mad at being sick, it's not tangible. So all you can do is just put it on those that are closest to you. So when the doctors, let's say, would come in his room and explain what therapies they were going to do, he would just not even engage in pleasantries. And it was so awkward. I found myself trying to fill the awkwardness with jokes and trying to lighten the mood and, you know, but also being seen as his parent. But I wanted to be his friend. You're constantly juggling all these roles while trying to keep the train moving towards like him healing. And he would just blow up and I couldn't do anything about it because he's sick, right? So I had to just kind of take it on the chin. And I think the big thing that, you know, I hear from you and I hear from so many different listeners and past guests is that there's no one right way for navigating this as a patient or as a caregiver. And so his anger was totally understandable and just sort of how he was dealing with it. And then it was you trying to find a way to navigate it as well and make sure that you really advocated for him while dealing with his emotional side of going through this. You know, you brought up a really interesting point about you know, you know your body. He knew his body and what was going on. And that doctors are going to say, cool, we can see you in three months. We can see you in six months. And you're like, no, 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 no. Today. Like, I need this done immediately. And so I think that unapologetic New Yorker in you is so, so <laughs> crucial in a time like this to be able to advocate for yourself. Do you feel like you always had that in you? I really didn't. I was socialized. I'm a first generation. My parents are immigrants. And so I, you know, it's the immigrant mindset to kind of like, don't raise a fuss, just get in the country, you know, you know, assimilate. So I wasn't really prepared for that. You know, I was just, like I said, taught to be meek and mild and let those in charge decide what's best. But as I said, watching my son and fighting even for his diagnosis, when I saw people kind of careless and casual, that armed me when it was my turn to say, you know what, we're not here for friends. My doctors could be great and they could be friendly, but they're not my friends. And it's a service industry and they're there to serve me. We're there to work together as a team, but ultimately it's my body. Absolutely true. Love that you say that. So 
what did emotional support for you look like while going through that period with him, with his leukemia? How did you take care of yourself? I didn't, quite frankly, I'm being honest. I pushed it down because it wasn't a priority at the time. It was just making sure that he got, because it was so acute, literally life or death. So I pushed all of my needs down. I pushed all of my pain down because I didn't want to have him feel any kind of additional burdens, guilt about me going through the motions. So I just locked it away until he was out of the woods. And then the gift for that for me was my own diagnosis soon thereafter. How long were both of you together in this process going through this that he had leukemia? Uh, So he was diagnosed 2014 and things were like touch and go for about a year and change. But some of the traumas and things come up after you're done with the quote unquote fight. So he was still in the emotional battle in addition to the physical battle in 2015. And I was diagnosed in July of 2016. So to me, it's all one time, quite frankly. Yeah, of course. So let's get into your story with your health. So you find this lump. Yes. You call your doctor. And what happened from there? As I said, I fought for the appointment. We went in and he, believe it or not, I said, you know what? Maybe my mind's playing tricks on me. Let me just bring up my concern and let him find it. And he couldn't find the lump. I literally had to put my hand over his hand and guide him to it. And then he kind of conceded a little bit like, oh, all right, maybe it's, you know, but I'm sure it's dense breasts. But it was shocking to me that I had to literally send him right to the spot. What do you think that was about? I'm sure in his mind, he already said, I had a physical recently. Things were fine. At the time I was young, 37, he probably thought there was no reason for me to be concerned. It was probably a cyst or, you know, you can explain these things away very easily. That's what I'm assuming his mindset was. But it's dangerous to do that. Yeah. Making assumptions is certainly not helpful in the medical world. So when you finally guided him and said, like, there's something here. What did he slash you do from there? He said, all right, you want a mammogram? I feel something fine. It's not no skin off my back. That's how I felt. I didn't feel that we came together and made the decision. It was more that he just gave me what I was looking for since I raised such a fuss. And so that started the whole journey. I went and had my mammogram and biopsy, ultrasound, you name it. The diagnosis came about a week and change later, which that's another thing that I feel is ridiculous, that it takes so long to get a diagnosis. Yeah. And was it the doctor himself who called to let you know? Oh, Harper, if you knew that question was going to set me off. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. There's enough distance where it's not as fresh. But no, uh, the doctor did not call me. I was on pins and needles waiting like the cell phone was burning a hole in my pocket because I was just walking around with my phone, waiting and waiting and waiting. And I'll never forget, it was after hours on a Wednesday where a covering doctor just kind of called me to let me know that, yes, I have cancer and follow up with my doctor. Have a great day. Click. (laughs) That's kind of how it went. Like the news that rocked my world was told not by my doctor and casually and 
it took like all of three minutes to like change my life. I don't understand how doctors don't have better bedside manners. And it's not all, I'm not going to stereotype all, Sure. but it's amazing how many of these stories I've heard. My best friend was diagnosed with thyroid cancer last year and she got a call from like an admin. Yes. Oh yeah. I think you have cancer. The doctor's not in the rest of the day, but, uh, call tomorrow. Precisely. Isn't it wild? Like it's just, you know, I say to people all the time, I'm like, people have been getting cancer and all sorts of illnesses for years. You'd think they'd figure it out by now, but nope. I wonder if part of it, and I've never really thought about this before this way, is that it's because they're so used to just giving these diagnoses so regularly and it's so sort of routine for them yeah. that they potentially forget about the emotional side of things. I 100% agree. And that's part of what fuels me to like, make change because yeah, that's exactly what happens. You know, even when I was having my uh, mammogram, the office, it's like everyone is there for a specific reason to figure out whether or not they have cancer. So you would think the mood of the office would be a little, not subdued, but you know, not people giggling and all sorts of, it's just really weird. But I guess, you know, it's a job for some people, but for you, it's like, a sliding doors situation. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that is part of it is that like some of these people do see it just as a job and not that there's a emotional component or a compassion component that is necessary in these kind of experiences. I have a doctor who I swear by at NYU and she has a person on her team who's incredibly intelligent, really knows what she's doing and is the bitchiest person I've ever met. And it's hard because I know she's really smart and she's doing the right thing, but she's like really painful to be around. It's just amazing how these people end up as doctors. So you get this diagnosis. It's completely shocking to you. What comes next? You go through treatment? Yeah. Well, before, I mean, when you get diagnosed, first they want you to have like a genetic test to figure out are you BRCA? Is it, you know, is it genetic? Is it? And for me, it was just like my son was a lightning strike in that his diagnosis was not genetic. Same for me. No genetic reason why I had it. So they at the time thought, oh, it's, you know, smallish. So we are kind of saying you're stage one. They actually recommended for me to have a lumpectomy. But I was just kind of turned off by the whole process and fearful because when you get that kind of diagnosis, you feel such a betrayal. Like in that same breath where I say, I know my body is the same breath that said, maybe I don't know my body because how could this exist in my body? And I didn't know for so long. So I wanted to have a double mastectomy. Take it all out is what I said, which I think saved my life the second time because it was at the operating table that they saw what I like to call the secret second cancer that didn't come up in any imaging. Wow you know, before surgery, you take MRIs and all these things. And it didn't come up in any imaging, any testing. It was on the table that my plastic surgeon found this little secret cancer that was hiding behind my chest wall. And it's because I chose the deep flap. That kind of surgery is like a very, very hard surgery. And he found it. And thank God he did, because had he not, they were going to most likely classify me as like stage one or what have you, and send me on my way. But in finding this, they said, no, no, chemo for you, radiation, the whole, you know, throw the kitchen sink at it. 
So the fact that you knew enough about your body to have a double mastectomy is huge. And what made you come to that realization that that was the route you wanted to go? I just, what was it like out damn spot? Like I just wanted, I just wanted it out. I felt like, you know, I can't trust myself to know what's going on in there. It's better to just annihilate it, take it all out and I'll start all over again. And that's what I did. And, and thank God I did. Thank God I did. I don't regret that decision at all. So it's been a few years since you went through chemo and radiation. And I know that that does not mean that your cancer journey is over. That's been discussed previously on the show with other people with different conditions and how it sort of remains chronic. So what does your journey look like now that your cancer is in remission and what your life looks like now as a cancer survivor? Well, I'll tell you, there's so many different angles you can talk about it, but I think what's really opened my eyes is I thought myself an empathetic person before and able to relate, but man, having an invisible illness, I swear, you know, my treat after I was done with chemo, I had a little break between chemo and radiation. I'll never forget. And my doctor said, go do something fun. Go on a trip to arm yourself for this next you know, round. And I was going to my parents' place in Florida. And one of the airlines does this thing where, which is great. They don't even question you. If you need to board early for whatever reason, be it an illness or disabled or what have you, go ahead. And so from the outside, I had a great wig. You know, I was tall. I'm fine. I looked fine, but inside my heart, all the damages of chemo. And so when I took advantage of the early boarding, this woman, I'll never forget, and she's like seared in my mind, made such a stink. Why does she get to go? I mean, why don't you just open it for everyone? She made me so embarrassed because she just questioned why did I get to go first before she did? Not knowing I had a wig, not knowing I finished chemo. It was so rude. I was trembling and I'm trembling now, even thinking about it, that I told her, and I didn't have to, but I said, for your information, I just finished chemo. I can barely walk. And I had to give this explanation, but you shouldn't. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lily CBD. Lily CBD is organically grown and an everyday essential to help you feel alive. Russell Marcus was a guest on episode 51 of the show and spoke about the value that CBD had on his mom's health while managing chronic pain. Over the last year, I've been regularly using Lily CBD at night, shortly before I go to bed to calm my nerves, and I see that it really helps relax me. I even love the taste. Head to lilycbd.com and use code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. That's lilycbd.com, code made visible, one word, at checkout for 15% off. Now, back to the show. People should not comment on people's bodies. You don't know what someone's going through just because they, quote unquote, don't look sick from the outside. And boy, it's fueled me even now to like really, really have respect for my body and everyone's bodies in whatever shape they're in. Oh, you got me because I know that one so well. And I'm sorry you went through that. And I know so many listeners can relate to that concept of the invisible side of illness. And that's why this show exists. 
And I think it's so, so important to raise the awareness of this stuff is that you have no idea what other people are going through. You may look fine, but what's going on inside, emotional or physical or both, could be completely traumatic. And so I think it's important for people to hear these stories and be reminded that this happens in everyday life, no matter what it is that you're going through. How did you cope with that? And again, I know we talked about, you know, coping with your son and you didn't really do anything for yourself. What did you do during the cancer diagnosis and then after to take care of you? This time around when I was sick, because when I, I was so focused when my son was sick on just being his support, being there right at his side, when I was sick, it was important for me to find community. I really needed to like find those that understood, like we all speak that unspoken language, right? That understood what I was going through without even me saying it, because going through these things, it's just so isolated. You just feel so alone. You don't know what to do with these emotions. It's a fight everywhere, whether you're in active treatment, post-treatment with your doctors, advocating for yourself, finding out what the right thing to do is. It's so community. That was my like major form of self-care was finding community. It helped me tremendously. It really did. Can you give us some more insight into how you found the community that you found and what it is? Well, because I, I'm at this intersection where I'm like old, oldish, but young still. And You're not old, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, young at heart. <laughs> but, you know, I tried when I, after I was diagnosed to go to one of these support groups and it just wasn't for me. It wasn't inviting. It scared me more than anything. So I did what everyone does. You go to the internet, you start Googling, you start looking at Instagram and hashtags. And that's what I did. I started looking at all the different permutations of hashtags on Instagram and kind of put myself out, dipped my toe out initially and made friends, internet friends, as my mom calls them. <laughs> and it helped. You really, you have to give a little bit of yourself because it's very easy to kind of like be shy and wait for folks to come to you. You had to, I figured, you know what? I'm going through everything. I got to be a little aggressive. This is where the New Yorker comes in. Let's get it done. So <laughs> I was looking for friends. And so damn it, I was going to get my friends. And so that's what I did. I made Instagram friends and they're still, they're my best friends to this day. How did you lead and share your story in introducing yourself to these people? Because I think people definitely struggle with finding who the right person is to reach out to and just sort of nervous about putting themselves out there. So what did you say? Do you remember in those first few messages? I was very tentative in the beginning. I did, you know, I think I had no profile and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of creepy if you asked me because I was like hiding <laughs> out there. I don't think I would have been my friend because I'm like, show your face. But um, I started trying to make it as organic as I could you know, watching people's profiles and seeing how we aligned, what differences we had. And I just said, tell with it. I slid in someone's DMs. And luckily they were getting together, doing a social, because it's you shouldn't just stay on the internet. Like URLs should eventually go to IRLs. Love it. So we took it offline and it just grew into these great relationships where, you know, they're sharing and caring and all that good stuff. But it really helped me because if I had questions and things I didn't know about, I could ask a real life person, not like WebMD, you know, or Google. And I would be armed with this information. 
and take it right back to my doctors and say, hey, I heard about this thing. Why haven't you told me about it? It keeps everyone on their toes. I think it's so important to have those people and find those people. And when you're talking about this, is this connected to the breasties? Yes, yes. So specifically, I, I guess I'll say it was Paige. And she put herself out there. That's how you find people, you know. She's a previvor and she put her story out on Instagram and on Facebook and what have you. And so I slid in her DMs and she said, well, let's get together. Let's hang out. And, you know, that's how it began. And so she started the Breasties and I've been very involved with them first, you know, as a recipient, now as an ambassador, because now I'm the elder statesman, nothing to do with age, just experience. (laughs) (laughs) And I can now impart what I've learned to those that are just starting. And it's tangible. Like people are now sliding in my DMs and telling me how, when I've shared stories about insurance gripes or how I had to curse out a secretary at my doctor's office, helps them in their fight, in their journey. And that's like the biggest reward. Yeah, it's so important for you to have gone through that yourself. And again, still be going through aspects of it and then being able to support other people going through it. I know that advocacy is a huge part of your mission and what you spend your time on related to breast cancer awareness, but also you're actively fighting systems to create a more inclusive and progressive movement towards equity. Can you talk a little bit more about this and how it relates to your experience? Yes. I mean, we're all human. So, you know, my doctors, nurses, health professionals, they're going into the workplace with the biases that they have. It's just how they're raised and how, what have you. So sometimes their behavior or their treatment or how they regard patients can be unintentional. But the systems, now that's what's racist, is the systems. So I think it's important to like advocate, speak up, let them be aware of where there are gaps in there. Like, you know, you're offering this, but is it to everyone? Black women, people of color, indigenous people. It's really, really my passion because I don't think access and privilege should dictate if you survive from cancer. It's not right. It's not fair. Absolutely. You started it by saying people are people. Everyone is a person. So how can people who haven't faced inequality in the medical system support the fight for equity? I think it's, I hate the phrase, but really it's a good one. If you see something, say something. When I see something, I say something. When I, you know, my doctors are careless or didn't bring something up, I mention it. You have to make someone alert because their senses could be dulled. They come in every day, they see patients, they clock out, it's the same old, same old. It takes someone alerting them sometimes to where the gaps exist so that they can make the change. And so that's what people should do on a small scale. We can't all be in the streets. We can't all be in the state house marching and what have you. But you can notice things in your offices, in your workplace, at your doctor's office and say something, alert them to it and follow up and follow up. What are some of the things that you've done? On a small scale, I'll tell you the story. So it's been very difficult with COVID with the doctor. I understand that. And I definitely try to have some grace because it's a pandemic. So you can't expect to call your doctor and get an answer right away. However, it was so challenging with the secretary getting through, leaving a message, asking for follow-up because I had a bit of a scare over the summer. And I felt like, You know, I'm not asking to make a a lunch date, 
this is my life here. Can I get some answers? And so I was going to let it slide until I remembered, maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe there's someone who's in a far dire situation that, let's say, haven't found their voice. So I escalated. I didn't just sit with it. I went to the office manager. I created a chart. Let me tell you, Harper. I created a chart with dates and times and everything. And I brought it to the office manager. And I said, listen, this is not acceptable. I think it's appropriate that you guys establish some sort of code of conduct and how one should interact with the patients. We should know. If you call their doctor on Monday, give them two business days, one business day, two hours. You shouldn't just be left to flap in the wind. It's not okay. These are small things, but important things, I feel. Well, it's interesting. The way that you put it, it makes it sound like it's like a sales process that needs to be put in place. You know, like there are systems that alert people that say, okay, it's been X number of days since you were last in touch with this client. And now it's time to follow up. The same sort of thing needs to happen in the medical profession. And I love that you went in and presented these recommendations because, again, they're in just routines. They're just doing their job and clocking out, especially the admin and reception people. And every so often you come across some really great people who will advocate for you and take your calls and really push things forward. But it is really important to be able to speak up and acknowledge when things are not going right and you need answers and you need to talk to the doctor as soon as possible. So I appreciate you giving an example of what you've been through and also, you know, tactics that people can use. Going back to the community thing, I met you through Instagram, through Tiffany Diba, who is episode number seven of the podcast, which feels like a hundred years ago. <laughs> and the reason that I know you through that is because you guys do something called Hip Hop Happy Hour. Can you talk a little bit about your connection to Tiffany and why and how you guys started Hip Hop Happy Hour? Yeah, so I met Tiffany through the Breasties. We met at a Breastie uh, Friendsgiving. And, you know, we're in two different cancer journeys, but there's so much overlap, right? We're like kindred souls, Tiffany and I, so much things in common. And we always text each other, DM each other. And when the lockdown started, we lost a lot of that in-person connection. She slid in my DMs and said, you like hip hop. I like hip hop. I like you and you like me. Um, why don't we share this with everybody? We'll just go on live. And we'll just talk through our problems, our talk through our shit, let's be honest, our gripes, and talk about things and also play music. So very just like randomly, we started this thing. And it's grown to be like a nice, tight community of folks that reunion every Friday on Instagram Live. And it helps me. It helps. Tiffany mentioned the other day that it's been, I guess, the whole lockdown, what, six months? I said, how can that be? We just started yesterday. <laughs> but it's something that we look forward to, even if we don't talk for the first half of the week. By Wednesday, we're like, all right, what's our theme? What are we doing? Where are we talking about? And if we even dare to not do it, folks will text and DM us like, <laughs> what's our theme? What are we doing? And I think it's helped not just me, but all of us like through this time. And we've made friends like I made friends with you. 
It's so much fun. I really enjoy tuning in when I do and learning new songs that I didn't know. And then when I hear like old throwbacks, I'm so pumped and like singing along and wondering if you can add a third person into your Instagram live so I can, you know, be part of it. (laughs) I'm just like typing as fast as possible to like, oh my God, I love this song. I know. We have notes to Instagram because we would love to have like a party where everyone can be seen and things like that. But, you know, we're working on it. I will say maybe there comes a time where it happens on Zoom where like you guys remain the host, but there's ways for other people to chime in. You know, Tiffany knows I I always have ideas flowing and I'm throwing these things out there. Yeah. So as Breast Cancer Awareness Month is upon us, what do you want people to know about breast cancer, survivorship, and the process of being your own advocate? Oh, Harper. Well, you know, there's a lot of breast cancer awareness talk. And yes, awareness is fantastic. You should be aware. You should, you know, every month, every first of the month, if you can, feel it on the first, check for lumps. But the diagnosis is just the first part. It's everything that's after. It's such, we use the word journey. I don't know if we can figure out a better word for it, but literally that's what it is. Navigating through that system is so difficult and you're never done. I've spoken to survivors that are 20 years out and it just hits them like a wave, like a ton of bricks, it hits them. So I want people to be aware, know their bodies and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. What do you have to lose? You know, it's your body. You're entitled to get the best care, the best treatment. You're allowed to fire a doctor if you don't vibe with him. If you just don't get along with him, that's enough reason for you to say, you know what? Let me keep looking. Your health comes first. And so I put my health first. I want everyone to put their health first. You only get one body, so you got to make the best of it. I think the point of saying... What do you have to lose is such a powerful statement. And I think it's such a reminder to everyone listening of what is the worst thing that could happen? Like the doctor fights back. The doctor says, leave my office. I mean, all things that you can deal with and find someone else that is going to respect you and take care of you and treat you like the person that you are, not just the patient that you are. And I think it's so, so, so important what you just said of making sure that you do what's best for you because it's you and and whatever support system you build around you, but ultimately it is your life and your body. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and share your story with us. How can people learn more about you, connect with you and tune in to Hip Hop Happy Hour? Oh, okay. Well, if people want to reach out and they want to slide in my DMs because my DMs are open, Instagram is the best place. My Instagram is Trish, T-R-I-S-H underscore New York City spelled out, New York City. Amazing. And Hip Hop Happy Hour is on Friday at 6 p.m.? Oh, it's every Friday at 6. We'll be there and we hope that you guys can join too. You too, Harper. Amazing. Yes. Thank you so much, Trish. Thank you so much, Harper. It was really, really fun. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, 
and Amanda Grisillo for the design.